Well, we are starting a brand new series today that's going to take us all the way through to the end of the summer. It's on a little tiny, tiny uh, epistle that is found way at the end of your Bible. It's only three chapters long. It's called Second Peter. And we are uh, entitling the series Dying Words. And the reason behind the dying words is because Peter tells us that he is not long for this world. And so he is expecting that this is, this is kind of it. He's going to put this out to this group of churches, and that's about it. So today we're going to do an overview of the whole letter, and uh, that's what we're going to focus on today. So the majority, now let's explain how we'll do that in a, in a little bit. You get a little bit of an idea if you look at the sermon application guide. But the majority of Second Peter deals with Peter's warnings about false teachers and about the immoral lives uh, that, they are, that they are living. And that means that this letter feels kind of negative as you're reading it. So one commentator suggests that one of the reasons that this little book is not on any Christian's list of favorite books is because of that negative tone. And so back in the 1990s, this particular commentator uh, wrote this about First, Second Peter. He said, given the option, which we will probably soon have, so it's kind of dated, listen to what he says, of choosing on our cable service the kind of sermon we would like to hear on Sunday morning, not many of us would probably choose denunciation of false teachers. But it might be the message that most of us, that we most need to hear. And so, of course, uh, we're uh, beyond the day that he's talking about there. And uh, we can do it on YouTube and uh, all, all that kind of stuff where we can pick and choose what we want to listen to and avoid what we may make us feel uncomfortable. But to ignore Second Peter and to ignore other parts of the Bible that can oftentimes feel negative, it's like ignoring the warning lights on your car, uh, the one that's telling you your brakes need replacing or the one that tells you your oil is about to run out. You don't want to live with the consequences of either one of those two things happening. And it's the same way with the kind of warnings that Peter gives us. You can look at the scandals that are like just about every week coming out about the church in particular, about things that have been happening in the church in particular. And, and what you see is each one of them is kind of either a study in the abuse of power or... Um, decadence, really, within the church or church leaders' lives, that kind of thing. But they are also, each one, if you look closely, they're a study of people, lots of people, ignoring the warning lights. And so the latest scandal is what was revealed just two Sundays ago uh, about the Southern Baptist Convention. It was just a reveal then, but the study went into depth about it of what's happened in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm not picking on the Southern Baptist Convention at all uh, in saying this because what was revealed there would probably be revealed in just about any institution in our world today. So two weeks ago, there was this massive third-party report that came out about sexual abuse by pastors and leaders over the last decades. And it also detailed, it's a big part of it, detailed a massive cover-up of what was happening. And if 
you know, you read enough on this subject, you'll hear some of the rationalizations or some of the reasons why people covered some of this stuff up. And really, in those situations that they're often in and with the reasoning that they're given, you know, without the, what we know now, it, you can kind of put yourself in there and say, I could have been part of that kind of decision. And maybe you can look back at your life and you can see times where you've covered things up in order to, um, to really save the institution, um, the mission of an institution. The, the revelations, though, are like, are horrific. And it's hard to imagine how many people could have been spared trauma of abuse if this had been made known sooner uh, as it could have been. Um, how many people are walking away from the faith, not just from the Southern Baptist denomination, but walking away from the faith because of this kind of thing, ignoring of warning lights. So we're going to see, when we're reading in Second Peter, we're going to see that this is nothing new. So it's as old as humanity on the one hand, and if you say, well, the church is supposed to be different, it's as old as the first century church, right there in the first century, right at the very beginning. It's a mess from the beginning because it's made up of human beings. We're a mess and we're in process and, and some are not in process. <laughs> some people are within the fold that are really not even trying. And, uh, and even among those of us who try, uh, we have a long list of failures uh, in our lives. Uh, so we're going to see that, and we're going to see that Peter is warning against false teachers in the early church who are uh, teaching false doctrines, um, heretical doctrines. They're attacking the teaching of the apostles. Uh, they're living sexually immoral lives. And the assumption is, I think the assumption, it's a false assumption if you come under this. It, this, this occurred to me while I was preparing this sermon, that we think all those things always fit together, that you're going to find all those things together every single time. But it doesn't have to be that way, and it oftentimes isn't that way. It may not have even been in the first century when Peter is writing. He may be putting together all these things and just kind of calling it all out as if it was one, but there's lots of things going on. So you can have, in real life, you can have champions of orthodoxy, champions of good doctrine, of Bible teaching, who are at the same time abusing power or sexually abusing people. You can have people who live a high moral standards, life, lives of integrity, about as high as a human being with all of our faults can live, and at the same time are teaching false doctrines and are steering people away from Scripture and away from Christ. And then you can have people who are, live by high moral standards and are, are pretty consistent in their life, who teach orthodox doctrine and stick to the Bible, who, as you see in some of these reports, are covering up what other people are doing because they don't want the mission and the institution that they love to be dragged through the mud um, or to be hurt, or to be legally in some way um, hurt financially. And so they put the institution, whether it be a school, or a church, or a denomination, or a ministry, uh, its preservation over protecting people, real people. 
And so as we go through the series, we'll look at how some of this happens. And we'll look at, from Peter, what, uh, what we can learn and some of the ways that God protects us, seeks to protect us if we'll cooperate with him and how we can keep from stumbling. So today we're doing this overview of 2 Peter, then we're going to uh, finish with talking a little bit about the tone of the letter again and why it's so important to learn from this letter. But because the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery and because your part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery, we open our Bibles every week and I want to encourage you to open your Bible to 2 Peter. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. It's on page 1,225 in our Bible. So 1225 in our Bibles, excuse me. <coughs> Thank you. And because I catch every cold that my grandchildren get, um, I'm coughing again. So, all right. So we're going to pray as we always do for the prayer of illumination. And this one is based on Romans chapter 10. So please, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ways that you speak to us and reveal yourself to us through your word. We come expectant for you to speak. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to hear. Illuminate your word so that we might understand. Help us to receive your truth and lead us to respond for your kingdom and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's how we're going to do uh, today. It's going to be different from anything that we've ever done. And so we're going to uh, watch the Bible Project introductory video, video to 2 Peter. But we've done that before, watching Bible Project videos. But we're going to do, what we're going to do is we're going to stop at various points. And so we'll hear, we'll see, we'll hear a recap again, and we'll look at some samples. So keep your Bibles open because we're going to look at some samples from 2 Peter. And, um, and the whole idea behind this is if you have a sense of the framework and the whole, you can have a better understanding of the parts. And so we do our Story of God course, which most of you have taken, for example. The whole idea is if you get a framework for how the Bible is put together, the story that it tells, you'll understand the individual parts a lot better. Same thing with Second Peter, although this is just three chapters. A little, little easier to kind of master the sense of how, how it's put together. And the amazing thing is, is... Not only do we need to do that with the whole Bible, these three chapters are so full, you will not master it this summer. And that's, that's um, I don't think you can master just about anything in Scripture because it's meant to be this meditative literature that keeps drawing back from all parts in the story and it's meant to take us on this journey. And at different times, we're going to see different things that the author expects and wants us to get from reading. So um, let's watch the very first part of the Bible Project video. The second letter of Peter. It's addressed to the same network of churches as Peter's first letter, and it's likely written from the same location in Rome. Peter's become aware of the fact that he's going to die soon, and the evidence that we have from early tradition was that Peter was executed by the Roman authorities during the reign of Emperor Nero. And so this letter acts as Peter's farewell speech. He begins by offering a final challenge that Jesus' followers must be people who never stop 
growing. And then this is followed by two final warnings about a growing number of corrupt teachers who are leading Christians in these church communities astray, first by their corrupt way of life and second by their distorted theology. Throughout the letter, Peter is countering accusations made by these teachers against himself and the other apostles. And Peter's goal is to restore confidence and order to these church communities. So Peter opens by reminding these churches that through Jesus, God has invited people to become a participant in his own divine nature. That is, to share in God's own eternal life and love, which is mind-blowing. And it requires a lifelong response. To receive this gift means a commitment to developing the same character traits that mark God's own divine nature. Peter lists here seven traits to strive for. And the final one encompasses and crowns all of the others, it's love, which according to Jesus means devoting oneself to the well-being of others, no matter their response or the cost. To love, according to Peter, is to share in God's own life. All right, as you can see, there's a lot packed in there. This is one of the Bible Project's early videos. They, the first videos that they did were a book, every book of the Bible, and you only hear Tim Mackey's voice in these. But the whole idea behind it is you take about an hour's worth of lecture and you put it into about an eight-minute video. Uh, but the reality is it, it, it is so packed that you can come back to them and watch them over and over again. So what we have here in this first section is uh, a remembrance that this is his kind of like his Peter's farewell speech. Uh, it's a challenge to never stop growing. In fact, uh, if you look at the very beginning and then you see the very last verse of the letter, it kind of serves as bookends for this call, this challenge to never stop growing. But interestingly, because so much of the middle uh, deals with uh, these warnings about false teachers, uh, that can get lost in it. So, a good part of the summer, we're going to have to work hard not to get lost in some of that negativity, what would come across as very negative, and warnings and all that sort of thing. And remember, this is all part of something bigger, uh, where he starts and where he ends. And it's a very short letter that you would be able to read in just a few minutes, and, uh, but we're going to spend weeks in, in those sections. So one of the goals, the video says, is to restore confidence. I think, I think the church today, Christians, we need to restore our confidence uh, as well. And he reminds us that, uh, that we participate in God's divine nature, which is a really weird thing to say. You won't find very many things like that in the New Testament. And uh, we'll, we'll spend some time talking about that because it sounds about as new agey to them then as it sounds today. And, um, and, and in ways that doesn't align with the rest of Scripture is what it sounds like at first, but it's not the way that he's using it. Uh, he calls them to live by God's character or to grow in the character traits that God has that we can share with him. There's a bunch of character traits that God has that we cannot have, but there are some that he has called us to reflect uh, by being his image bearers. All right, so we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 in chapter 1, just to give a, a little sampling of this, where he says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Let's uh, watch the second portion of video. Peter then states the letter's purpose. It's going to act as a memorial of his teaching that can be passed on to later generations because he's not going to be around to give it much longer in person. So before he dies, he wants to address these objections and accusations being made by the teachers who distort Jesus' teaching and that of the apostles. So Peter first addresses an accusation repeated by the skeptics present and future, namely that he and the apostles just made up all of this stuff about Jesus being risen from the dead and king of the world. Jesus isn't really going to come back one day. So Peter offers his eyewitness testimony of the powerful moment of Jesus' transformation on the mountain. Remember the story in Mark chapter 9. The apostles saw Jesus exalted as king, and his resurrection means that he's alive as king and will return to rescue our world one day. And so the future return of Jesus to bring God's kingdom, this will fulfill what all the ancient scriptures have been pointing to all along. The words of the Old Testament prophets. They're not fabricated fantasies. Rather, through these human words of Scripture and through the human Jesus, God himself has spoken to us. All right. So, uh, as the video says, it's, it serves kind of as a memorial to his teaching. One of, the, uh, one of the questions that we should always be asking when we're reading Second Peter is, why these words? I mean, think about that. Think you're writing a letter uh, as a leader in the church to a group of churches, you are thinking that this might be my last letter, and it probably is, and I've got some things to say. And so that is a really good question to ask ourselves. Why? Why? And it lends to a sense of urgency in the letter. Um, in some senses, um, maybe even a little bit of stridency uh, in, in the letter. Uh, but we need to ask that question constantly. Why? Why these particular words? Now, once in a while, we got to remember too, we got to step back and remember this isn't the only letter he wrote. And so there are just some things that he's not going to go over again because he's already written about them. So we'll kind of remember that uh, along the way. But it's always good to ask that question. So he addresses objections. The first objection is that the apostles just made all this stuff up which makes you wonder about these false teachers. Why, you know, what, what are they grasping onto? What are they, what are they trying to do? Uh, he talks about the transfiguration uh, that the gospel speaks about. The, um, one, uh, the, the, the gospels, uh, Mark in particular mentions it, for example. And, uh, and then he testifies to the truth of the prophets. So when he testifies about the truth of the prophets, we're going to have an opportunity to, to take a little bit of a dive into how God's word functions as God's word, how God uses people uh, and inspires them to write authoritative texts that, that we follow. So there's a, there's a lot to um, look at there. So look at, look at verse 15 as a little example of this where it says, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, 
with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. All right, let's watch the next video. Peter then moves on to address the threats raised by corrupt leaders in the church, and he focuses on more objections that they raise. So first, these teachers deny the idea of a final reckoning when God's going to hold all people accountable for their choices. And this denial is what conveniently allows the teachers to ignore Jesus' teaching about money and sex, because they're making tons of profit by teaching in the churches, not to mention the fact that they're sleeping around. But Peter reminds the readers that God can and will meet rebellion with his justice. He recalls three ancient examples when God did this. He first mentions the story about the sons of God in Genesis 6 as it was interpreted in a popular Jewish work of the time called First Enoch. First Enoch says the sons of God are rebellious angels who crossed the line and slept with women, earning God's judgment. Peter then brings up the story of the ancient flood and then the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In each case, there was a rebellion that led to divine judgment. But, Peter says, God was always faithful to deliver his people, and he uses the story of Lot to provide an example. All right, so the first objection is that the disciples or the apostles have made all this stuff up. The second one is that there is no final accounting. There is no final judgment. And uh, that presumably leads to some lifestyle choices that some of these false teachers uh, make in their lives. They live immoral lifestyles. And so, interestingly, if you look at that poster, that Bible Project poster in the middle that shows the false teachers there, um, I was looking at that and I thought, you know, they look kind of cartoonish. Uh, there. You know, one looks very haughty and the other one looks very lascivious and, and that sort of thing. The reality is uh, that uh, when, when I look at what I consider to be pretty plainly false teachers that I can see on the internet and, um, and I watch and they're being listened to by thousands of people uh, I, and, and they are lauded by those people, I can very easily look at that and they look cartoonish to me. And I look and I say, how, do, how does anybody get fooled by this? And, um, but the reality is that within my own tribe, within my, our tribe, our larger tribe of Christianity, within our own tribe within that, uh, it's harder to see uh, the, and, and this is true for every, every sub-tribe, it's harder to see the cartoonishness in a sense. Um, and it's easy to see something else. All that to say is don't look for cartoonish characters, who are obviously, you know, leading people the wrong way. It's hardly ever obvious when the people that you follow have, you know, kind of gone off the tracks. It's very easy uh, for that to happen. They are likely much more believable than the cartoons. Now, it makes sense in this kind of thing to, to use the cartoonish characters, but in real life, they're rarely cartoonish, unless they're not in your tribe, then, then you can look at them and say, how ridiculous is that? Um, so let's look at uh, chapter two, the first three verses, as a sample from that section. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. 
bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been been sleeping. So you can start getting a taste there of kind of the strong words that Peter starts using in this epistle. And really, you can start seeing um, parallels. You you, you can go back to Jesus' teaching that Peter heard. And if you look at the right spots, you can see parallels to this where Jesus was very, very concerned with people who would take people down a wrong road, a road to, to destruction. All right, let's watch the next section. Peter then connects these ancient stories to the teacher's corrupt way of life. They too are after money and sex, they despise God's authority, and they lead other people to think that God doesn't care about moral decisions. He says they teach a message of Christian freedom and use it as a license to do whatever they want. And This is why Peter's going to bring up Paul's letters later on in chapter 3. It appears that these teachers have distorted Paul's message of liberation in Christ, but that's not the kind of freedom Paul meant. And Peter makes clear that these teachers are not really free. In reality, they're slaves to their bodily impulses. And the fact that they're Christians makes it even more tragic because knowing Jesus' teaching makes them double accountable. They have become pitiful examples of the ancient proverb about a dog returning to its vomit and a washed pig going back to the mud. So Peter tells us that these false teachers live corrupt lives in the name of Christian freedom, Uh, but in reality it's not freedom. It's slavery to sin. And so the scripture oftentimes speaks in this way. It speaks this from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. It will speak of sin as in sins that you commit. But it will oftentimes speak of sin almost as if it was a personal power with a personality that seeks to get hold of you and to pounce on you. And that when it gets you, it becomes this power that takes over your life and that you become a slave to that power. You become a slave to sin. And so he makes the point, no, when that happens, you understand that that's not freedom. It's oftentimes done in the name of freedom, but in reality, they are slaves to the thing that they think is making them free. Uh, So pick up in verse 17, 17 through 19, where it says, these people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They police, they promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Let's go on with the next video. Peter then addresses the reasoning behind the teacher's denial of the final reckoning. They say generations of God's people keep coming and passing away without seeing the fulfillment of their hopes. Where is this promised return of Jesus? Peter responds by showing how short-sighted this objection is. 
Look around, he says, at this remarkable universe that we inhabit. The fact that we exist at all means that at some moment in the past, God's word intervened in a dramatic way to bring something out of nothing and to bring order out of chaos, and he can do so again. And so the real question is, why is God taking so long? But Peter reminds us that our human conception of time is extremely limited. The long expanses of time through which God works don't fit neatly into the framework of our very short lives. These long amounts of time are actually a sign of God's patience because each generation is offered the chance to recognize its own selfishness, to humble itself, and repent before God's generous grace. All right, so the idea is Jesus hasn't come back. They've, they've been waiting maybe 30 years, and Jesus hasn't come back, and they're already impatient, and they say, we don't think it's going to happen. Uh, so you can imagine today. And, and uh, it occurred to me while I was watching the video for the first time that um, the, the question, why is he taking so long, is in reality uh, stated in our day in a different way. And it's the complaint, why didn't God do anything. Now, if you understand that question in the context of the story of God, that's a question of, because a lot of Christians ask that question, why didn't God do anything knowing that God is going to do something? But we ask, why didn't he do something now? That's the question, why is he taking so long? And, um, and so we, we live with that question. Uh, we have that question many times, especially with some of the things that are happening right now in our world, and we wonder, you know, why is he taking so long? Uh, so one of the outcomes of this idea that Jesus isn't coming back is um, kind of an immorality, a way of living that says, yeah, I'm not going to be accountable. Jesus isn't coming back, and I can live any way that I want to. All right, so a sample of that, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, and following their own evil desires. They will say... Where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water by water. Let's go to the next section. And God's grace will bring the story to a close on the day of the Lord. Here Peter draws upon the prophetic poetry of Isaiah and Zephaniah, who describe the day of God's justice as a consuming fire. Peter says, the heavens will pass away and the stoicheia will melt by fire. This is a Greek word that could refer to the elements, in which case it means the dissolution of the material universe, or more likely it refers to heavenly bodies, in other words, the stars. That's what this word means in Isaiah chapter 34 where Peter is quoting from. And in that case, this line is a metaphor about the sky being peeled back, so to speak, before the God who sees all. 
And so this is why Peter says the day of the Lord will result in the earth and all its works being exposed. The ultimate purpose of God's consuming justice is not to scrap the material universe. Rather, it's to expose evil and injustice and remove it so that a new kind of heavens and earth can emerge, one that is permeated with righteousness, full of God's love and people who know and love God and love their neighbor as themselves. Peter concludes by saying this is the true Christian hope that Jesus and all the apostles have been announcing, including Paul, whose writings can be misunderstood if you rip them out of context, but all the apostles are on the same page. And so Peter ends his final address to the church. All right. So uh, Peter has, towards the end of his letter, some very strong words about the day of judgment, that there will be an accounting but also this hope of a new creation. A lot of people looking in from the outside, a lot of people even within the church have this idea that like the whole material world is gonna be destroyed and then you know, we're gonna live disembodied lives you know, for all of eternity in heaven and that is not the Bible story. The Bible story is there's gonna be a new creation. There's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. And, the video captures that well, and it's very clear from the reading of Second Peter. If you just keep reading, and you'll see it, uh, that it's very clearly stated, stated there. So let's look at the last couple of verses in the letter where he says, Therefore, verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. So, um, brings kind of that warning to a close and then returns to where he was at the very beginning. And he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Got one more uh, portion of the video to wrap it up. Now, the tone of 2 Peter, it feels really intense, but his passion comes from a firm conviction that God loves this world and he's determined to rescue it through Jesus. And so this means that God's love must confront and deal with the sin and injustice that ruins his beloved world. And in God's own time, he will do so, opening up a new future for humanity and for the universe itself. And so Second Peter has a wide, expansive vision of hope for the whole world, and it challenges us to examine our everyday lives. That's what the second letter of Peter is all about. All right. So um, pastor and author Donald Markham, he, um, he writes about how a few years ago the Milwaukee airport opened up what they called a recombobulation area uh, in the airport. We got a picture of it here. And um, it was a place for frazzled travelers. So uh, apparently it started as a joke. I guess that airport, the staff there, they do a lot of jokes, a lot of, a lot of funny stuff. And, um, and it started as a joke, but it really caught on. And the whole idea was that if you go through security and all the indignities of that and the indignities of traveling, especially these days, it can be very discombobulating. That's, by the way, a word. Uh, for those who've not heard it before, um, recombobulation is not a word. <laughs> All right. So the idea behind recombobulating is that travelers need an, a, a place where they can stop. It's kind of a reminder. Stop. 
take a deep breath, uh, reorient yourself, get a hold of your wits before you go back out into the rest of the crazy world, <laughs> but not at the pressure of flying. So it's about reorienting ourselves for life. And so Markham uh, writes this. He says, it's helpful to think of Second Peter as a recombobulation area for Christ followers whose lives have been thrown into disarray by the pressures of living in an antagonistic, skeptical, and morally confusing world. Now, I don't disagree with him. I agree with him 100% that this is a world where in increasing ways, in some ways, is more antagonistic to Christians or in different ways antagonistic, skeptical, uh, morally confusing world. But when I read morally confusing world, I don't think of the people out there only. I think of the church. Uh, it is a morally confusing place uh, for a lot of people, for most of us. And um, so when I think of that, I, I think of the confusion that we experience as Christians oftentimes in our lives and in our hearts. And we, we sense it. We sense it in our small groups sometimes. We sense it and experience it in our families uh, when we gather with uh, other fellow believers within our own families. And it just gets kind of crazy sometimes. And, and sometimes I think, and I know a lot of you feel this way because we've had conversations about this personally, uh, about this, but sometimes it feels like the whole church over the last four, five, six years, the whole church at large has lost its collective mind. <laughs> there are those days where you just, you just wonder what's going on. And, and it's true for all of us. I mean, it's easy to see it in some people and just miss it in ourselves. But we're in serious need of recombobulation. And I'm hoping that this series in Second Peter and the things that we're going to get to talk about because of the things that Peter talks about is going to help us in that recombobulation, uh, that we would reorient our lives. The call is going to be to reorient our lives in places, in ideas, in ways of living that have lost alignment with Christ and His ways, where we have uh, lost our focus on Christ, on His teachings on his priorities, on his mission for our lives, uh, on the fact that we live with this incredible privilege, what Mackie in the video calls um, just uh, a mind-blowing privilege of participating in God. And so what kind of reorienting and recombobulating does Peter offer? Well, here's just a, a sampling of some of the things that we're going to be looking at. He offers a reminder of our union with Christ. And so one of the primary, if not the primary way that believers are described in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are described, are with two words, in Christ. And yet, it's one of the most neglected doctrines of Scripture that we have union with God in Christ. And so we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. Uh, it offers a renewed call to growing in discipleship and character. So many distractions, so many things that would pull us away 
from discipleship. Um, it, it can be... Um, it can be sinful type things. Well, let's say it can be sensual type things. It can be politics. It can even be theology that can pull us away at times from growing in discipleship and the kind of character traits that, that Peter talks about. And so that's one of the things that we'll be talking about. It's a field book in many ways for recognizing and resisting false teaching. But at the same time, we're going, to be, we're going to be looking at that because there is a lot of false teaching that's, that's all running through so many things that we, um, that we read or that we hear. And, um, but there's also, we'll, we'll spend some time talking about where we find false teaching in places where it's not there. Uh, it's almost like part of the discombobulation right now is everybody's listening to everybody to see, not everybody, but a lot of people are like, listening to everything that someone says and immediately accusing people of things that aren't there. And, or maybe there or may not be there, but are made as accusations uh, against, against people. The interesting thing is, Peter says some things in his letter that if I were to, without a lot of explanation, just state his words, you guys would think I was a heretic. All right, so we're going to look at why is it that he uses the words he uses, because like I think I said earlier, some of the things he said were as weird sounding then as they would be in a Bible-believing church today. And so how does he use language to connect with people? And then uh, finally, a vision of what our true hope is, kind of shedding ourselves of a lot of false ideas about what we get to look forward to and what God is up to. And where all of this is going. And it will include judgment, but also new creation. And it requires judgment because God is a just God. He's not just going to go, oh, well, he's a just God. Uh, so that's all part of the story. So there's an important question embedded at the very end of the letter in 2 Peter 3:11 that you can just kind of pull out of its context for a moment. And it's an important question to ask as we go through this letter, it's what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people ought we to be? Well, Christians and a watching world, so within the church and outside of the church, uh, we need to be people who can answer this question from a Christ-centered viewpoint. But not just to answer the question, we need to be the kind of people that are then pursuing whatever that answer is. What kind of people ought we to be when we Look at the kind of people we ought to be. There should be a passionate devotion to that life, to that way of life, oriented around Christ, centered on Christ, and centered around the things that are most important to him um, and moving in that direction. So, summer of recombobulation as we look at Second Peter. I want to encourage you to start reading the letter right now. Uh, keep asking yourself the question, why these words? Uh, Peter's dying words. So I have included in my we at my website, at my blog, I've included at henry-williams.net a downloadable reading plan for the summer and an explanation as to why is it so simple. All right, so I'm not going to give you the reason. You can go there yourself. but. Let me 
two, two things, two reasons why you might want to download this reading plan and follow it for the summer. Uh, one is you have stopped reading the Bible regularly in your life. According to a recent Barna survey, um, I think it was covering 2021, precipitous drop on Bible reading and reflection. Uh, like huge, huge drop. We come up with all kinds of reasons for that. But maybe you say, yeah, that, that is me. I used to read my Bible more. I read it less now. Uh, I'll just give you this one clue. Why such a simple reading plan? Because most other reading plans, you'll quit. And if you're jumping back in, I'll, it explains it in there, why simple is better, way better than taking on some big challenge like, you know, I'm going to take on Mount Everest. I'm going to read the whole Bible this summer, you know, to make up for the lack of reading in my life. You'll quit. 98% of you will quit before you get done. So, uh, take, take a look at that. A uh, second reason to follow this reading plan is it'll prepare you each week in, in a unique way uh, for each sermon. I would love uh, for people to come up and say, you know, I've been reading the passage that you just preached on all week, every day, and I was hoping you were going to talk about this, and you didn't. <laughs> now, my answer is going to be, I can't talk about everything, right? <laughs> you don't want me to. Uh, we could be here a long, long time. Uh, but yes, that shows you spent some time reading and reflecting on the passage. And that's what I would love. That's why I would love to hear that. All right. So um, remember daily life also. It's a reflection back on the same passage after the sermon. You can be doing, you can be reflecting back and looking forward at the same time. So I encourage you to use those resources. All right. All right. So we're moving into the third Movement of our worship, take out the little packet and take the clear part off first and be ready with the elements. Um, before I forget, I just want to say too, watching last night, uh, every once in a while we have to do these reminders. You'll forget again in practice, but let's keep reminding each other. The light station up here, when you're lighting the candle, Turn the unlit candle. Don't stick the stick down in there. The flame comes up. All right, not a good thing. Secondly, don't blow out the stick. That's what the cinders are there for. Just stick it in there. It's better than blowing, okay? Um, so use it in that way. But uh, as I said earlier, uh, we look forward to the new creation um, and it is possible for us to enjoy it because there is a judgment that happens. And there's a judgment that happens at the cross. Jesus makes it possible for us by putting our faith in him to not experience uh, the wrath of God against sin, his justice against sin. He's a just God, but he's also a completely loving God. And so he goes to the cross and he's willing to be torn to pieces for our sins. And he calls us to put our faith in him. As he said to the disciples on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you uh, for 
your provision and your promises. We thank you for this sacrifice of Christ that makes it possible for us to be in Christ, to fellowship with you, to participate in you. We are so, so thankful for that. We pray, Father, that it would shape our lives more and more because it shapes our hearts more and more. Help us to have our hearts in tune with you, living in gratefulness for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.